Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Monday, October 17th, 2022. It's been 3,154 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 236 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's go ahead and start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure would increase during the week of October 17th was, regrettably, accurate. Second, we assess that the Kherson counteroffensive is restarting or will restart imminently. Third, absent a renewed counteroffensive, we assess the battlefront across Ukraine is currently frozen with almost no territorial changes in the last week. Fourth, we assess that the mobilization of up to 300,000 troops will have little impact on the battlefield due to poor morale, discipline, and a lack of equipment among MOBICs. Fifth, we maintain that Ukraine still holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain defensive on all axes except Solidar-Bakhmut. Sixth, We assess that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue for the rest of the week due to ongoing NATO and Russian military drills driving political posturing in Eastern Europe. Seventh, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, and the chances of the use of nuclear weapons are in decline. Eighth, Despite the improvement in the political situation, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to previous irresponsible language from the Kremlin. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. Let's get some regional updates and, since it's a Monday, check in with both belligerents' objectives. We'll start with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold existing defensive lines, protect remaining lines of communication, called locks, those are supply lines, defend Kherson, prevent envelopment on the western side of the Dnipro River, and restrict insurgent activity. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system or MLRS attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, has requested a media and analysis blackout to respect operational security in Kherson. 
We will continue to provide high-level information from GSAFU and Operational Command South, that's OCS, and use other sources to confirm the veracity of any claims they make. During this time, we will not be updating our war map for the entire Kherson Oblast or a small area in west-central Zaporizhia Oblast on the banks of the Dnipro River until authorized by GSAFU, OCS, or the Office of the President of Ukraine. This does include amplifying information available through open-source intelligence. We understand that this may seem unreasonable, given that there will be information available in the public domain, or see this as picking a side. Look, as a team, we are horrified at the treatment of Russian Mobics. It has been so depressing to see so much wasted human life and potential lost. Honoring the request for operational security will, in the long term, save lives— Ukrainian military lives, Ukrainian civilian lives, and, yes, Russian soldiers' lives, too. The ratio of combat deaths in Kherson is estimated at one Ukrainian soldier to six to seven Russian soldiers. Russia's invasion is illegal, horrific, and the litany of verified war crimes is the worst this planet has seen in four to five decades. We are hearing reports that the slaughter, and that is the right word here, slaughter, of Russian troops is taking a toll on the mental health of Ukrainian soldiers. The Mobiks are just being thrown to the front lines, with regular Russian troops holding the second line of defense behind them. If the Mobiks try to retreat without orders to do so, political officers solve the problem. So it is for that reason we will honor the request from the general staff of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. We hope you can understand this decision and how it aligns with our values. Having said all that, there wasn't any fighting that we could report. GSAFU reported that Ternovipoti was shelled, indicating that the area remains a no-man's land leaning toward Ukrainian control. OCS reported that Russian forces fired artillery along the entire line of conflict. The Ukrainian Air Force executed 15 airstrikes, and ground forces carried out 230 fire missions. Of course, geographical and target information was not provided. We can confirm that Ukrainian forces continued supply interdiction along the Dnipro River and maintained fire control on the north and south banks. Russian-appointed administrators reportedly are withdrawing so-called state institutions from the oblast, such as banking information, property records, and pension funds. The administrative and financial systems are being transferred to Russian-occupied Crimea. There continue to be anecdotal reports of a growing number of Russian surrenders, with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky dropping a hint in a televised address, stating, quote, I would like to mention today those units that provided us with a replenishment of the exchange fund. I thank the 54th Separate Reconnaissance Battalion named after Mikhailo Tisha, the 80th Separate Airborne Assault Brigade, and the 92nd Separate Mechanized Brigade, which during the offensive significantly increased our ability to bring Ukrainians home. End quote. Quick sidebar here. The term exchange fund refers to the number of prisoners of war, that's POWs, in the custody of Ukraine, which creates leverage for future exchanges with the Russian Federation. Not all of the units mentioned by Zelensky are located in Kherson, but it is the area with the most activity. OCS reported that air defenses shot down 16 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones across their command area. 
Earlier in the day, Ukrainian air defenses shot down nine of 13 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones targeting Mykolaiv. Four drones hit the city, damaging fuel storage and a medical supply warehouse. There were no injuries in the attacks. Some quick assessment here. Ukrainian air defenses are becoming more effective in targeting the Iranian-sourced combat drones in the last week, with a success rate of 75%. This indicates they are formulating effective tactics to identify, track, and destroy the UAVs. Russia is using 400 to 600 drones a month, and it is unlikely that Iran can provide replacements at a sustained level. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia, where the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and ensure the area's civilian population is prepared in the event of a nuclear accident. There was no change in the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. There continues to be no update on the status of the deputy general director of ZNPP, Valery Martinyuk, who was kidnapped by Russian troops six days ago. We did not have a progress report on the restart of reactors 5 and 6. The Ukrainian National Resistance Center reported that Kadyrovites of the SOBR unit Akhmat had been assigned to defend ZNPP. Overnight, Nikopol and Markhanets were struck by more than 40 grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, injuring one person. Russian rockets targeted apartment buildings, housing, and an industrial area, and damaged gas pipelines and the electrical grid. The attacks have continued despite the lack of shelling of the ZNPP or Enerkhodar in over a week. Russia fired four cruise missiles into the Dnipropetrovsk oblast. Air defenses were able to shoot down three, but the fourth hit, quote, critical energy infrastructure, causing a major fire. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, defend the existing line of conflict, and end the insurrection that is throughout the Russian-controlled territory. The Ukrainian objective is to fix Russian assets in place to prevent redeployment, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and support and expand the insurrection in occupied territories. Russian forces shelled settlements from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Sherbaki. Otherwise, there wasn't any significant fighting reported by any source. So let's go ahead and move on to southwest Donetsk, where the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, maintain existing defensive lines, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. 
The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, Militia Public Relations Channel, did not report any offensive action today and claimed their units destroyed a self-propelled artillery system and one tank. Ukrainian forces carried out 175 fire missions on the Russian-occupied territory. Artillery fire increased, with GSAFU reporting that the DNR and Russian forces fired along the entire line of conflict. Positional fighting continued northwest and west of Donetsk. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued to push west toward Krasnohorivka, but could not move the line of conflict. West of Donetsk, there was positional fighting in Vodyana, Marinka, and Novomikhailivka. Some assessment here. The DNR remains combat-destroyed and ineffective. The push to take Piski and open the road to Dnipro started almost three months ago, with no appreciable gains after reaching the E-50 ring road in mid-August. Fall has been warmer and drier than historical norms, but it is increasingly unlikely that any gains can be made west of Donetsk before late fall weather arrives in Ukraine. In northeast Donetsk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, defend against Ukrainian advances toward Luhansk, and capture Bakhmut Solidar. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend G-locks, which are locks on the ground. That's ground lines of communication. Russian forces continued defending the Donetsk-Luhansk administrative border and attacked Ukrainian troops in Terny. There wasn't any change in the situation. Ukrainian sources reported that Russian troops made marginal gains in Nevsky, measured in meters. Positional fighting continued on the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border south of Lusychansk in Spirn. The most significant documented fighting continues to be in northeast Donetsk, The biggest drama is, once again, though, on social media, with a candid assessment of the situation around Bakhmut by private military company or PMC Wagner Group financer Yevgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin threw shade at the DNR, Second Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Chechen forces, and unaffiliated journalist organization War Gonzo, without mentioning any by name. He claimed that reports of Optin and Ivanhrad being captured were untrue and that Wagner forces had not made significant gains toward Bakhmut. Prigozhin added that reports of Ukrainian troops retreating, a rumor started by War Gonzo, were untrue and that Ukrainian forces were effective fighters beginning to adapt to NATO techniques, saying, quote, The legend of the fleeing Ukrainians is just a legend. Ukrainians are guys with the same iron balls as we are, end quote. He stated Wagner preferred to fight independently because, quote, it's more reliable, appearing to dismiss DNR, LNR, and Chechen troops. It's the first time Wagner's leadership has acknowledged that they view Ukrainian troops as equals on the battlefield, and there's been a lack of progress. To his point about the lack of progress, Ukrainian forces filmed themselves burning Russian flags on the outer edge of Bakhmut and standing comfortably without any artillery fire in the background. As previously noted, fighting continued south and east of Bakhmut, with no progress made. There was also fighting east of Solidar, again with the situation unchanged.
I wonder if the DNR or Chechens read our situation reports or listen to the podcast, because after weeks of never on a Sunday, there was an attempted advance yesterday on Mayorsk past the railroad station. It, it did fail, though. Some assessment here. We maintain our assessment that PMC Wagner is committed to capturing Bakhmut at all costs due to financial and political motivations. The acknowledgement by Prigozhin that Wagner is having battlefield difficulties and that the PMC's success has been oversold is likely setting conditions for what will continue to be a long siege due to recruitment issues and coming winter weather. Let's move on to Luhansk. The Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold current defensive lines, and control insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, prevent the retreat of Russian soldiers from Liman, make opportunistic territorial gains, support insurgents, and interdict supplies. There was no significant fighting reported in this region beyond the conflict along the administrative border which we already talked about in the northeast Donetsk segment. Zarichne and Bilohorivka were shelled by Russian forces, with no reports of significant ground fighting. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, where the Russian objective is to retreat and minimize casualties, prevent Ukrainian forces from further advancing from their bridgeheads on the east bank of the Oskil River, and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever G-locks into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. Neither belligerent reported significant fighting in Kharkiv, where Russia now controls less than 2% of the territory. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, the Russian objective is to lock Ukrainian military resources into place and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain the integrity of the international border, deter attacks, and protect civilian lives. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Romadas of Velika Pisarivka, Bilopilia, and Krasnopilia were attacked by Russian helicopters, mortars, and grad rockets fired by MLRS. Velika Pisarivka suffered the heaviest attack, with 54 strikes from mortars and rockets. Additionally, two Russian helicopters fired 20 unguided rockets into the region. Mortar attacks on Bilopilia knocked out electrical power to 2,100 households, but did not damage the regional power plant. There was a border skirmish near Krasnopilia, with machine gun fire exchanged along the border. Russian missiles struck the Romni district, damaging, quote, critical infrastructure and causing casualties. There wasn't any additional information at the time of recording. In the Cherniev Oblast, the villages of Senkivka, Hasichivka, Mikolaivka, and Pokhres were shelled from across the international border by Russian forces. Moving on to the Kyiv region, where, at the time of recording, the city of Kyiv had been struck by at least one Iranian-sourced kamikaze drone. It was reported that one drone landed near a train station, setting residential buildings on fire, 
and the second one was shot down, with the debris landing in the city center. Officials reported three more drones had hit the Shevchenkivsky district and that roads in that part of the city have been closed. On the Russian front, Ukrainian missiles hit the airport in Bilgorod, with the attack caught on video. Russian air defenses failed to prevent the attack, which appeared to target S-300 anti-aircraft launchers located at the airport. The anti-aircraft site is believed to have been responsible for shooting down two Ukrainian aircraft in recent weeks and may have been struck by an AGM-88 Harm anti-radiation missile. Pictures were circulating online showing Russian military equipment on the Kerch Bridge on October 15th. The pictures were geolocated, and the equipment is stuck on the approach to the bridge. Railroad access remains closed, and the ferry routes were suspended until at least Tuesday due to strong winds. New pictures showed that the damaged rail cars had been removed. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Videos show significant amounts of Russian military hardware being transferred into Belarus. Some of the equipment was marked with a triangle, which is a new tactical marking. Up to 9,000 Russian troops will be deployed, and the Belarusian Ministry of Emergency Situations was distributing weapons and checking bomb shelters for readiness. We had previously reported the renewed presence of Russian multi-role fighter planes in Belarus, which some sources are blowing out of proportion because of their nuclear weapons capabilities. Some assessment here? The presence of new tactical markings on the incoming military hardware raises questions about Russia's intent and if they will attempt to move across the Ukrainian border. We maintain that the risk is low and remind our readers and listeners that when Russia was bogged down in Mariupol and had withdrawn from Kyiv, the Kremlin stirred the pot in Belarus and Transnistria and rattled nuclear sabers. It was all sound and fury that amounted to nothing. If we think rationally, Russian forces opening up a second front north of Kyiv or attempting to push into western Ukraine toward Lviv would be ill-advised. Any renewed offensive operation in the northern forests of Ukraine in November or December has a high risk of failure. Unfortunately, Russian President Vladimir Putin and his inner circle have not acted rationally, so it is hard to conclude what Belarus may do. Ukraine has significant military resources along the Belarusian border and has worked to strengthen defensive lines since Russia retreated in early April. Further, the Russian Ministry of Defense has been stripping Belarus of ammunition and military hardware for months. In a further sign that Russia is running out of precision munitions, Iran will be transferring Fateh-110 and Solfaghar ballistic missiles. The Fateh-110 is a short-range missile with a range of 300 kilometers, while the Solfaghar is a medium-range missile with a range of 700 kilometers and a warhead of up to 800 kilograms of high explosives. Both missiles are more accurate than the Russian Iskander-M and will likely have a lower failure rate. Some assessment here. For an alleged superpower, Russia having to source combat drones and ballistic missiles from Iran and requesting ammunition from North Korea is, in a word, embarrassing. Although this proves the state of Russian precision munition inventory, the Iranian-supplied missiles should not be dismissed. The shorter-range Fatsa-110 has a reported accuracy of plus or minus 5 meters. 
Based on nine months of data, it is highly unlikely that the Russian Ministry of Defense will use the new missiles effectively to strike critical military targets. It is more probable they will be used to attack civilians and civilian infrastructure. France announced they would provide Ukraine with motorized floating bridges, although a delivery date was not set. After irresponsible headlines caused minor panic about Russian nuclear submarine Bilgorod leaving port, the vessel was spotted by satellites back in port in Severodvinsk, Russia. Some assessment here? There is no indication that Russia has been mobilizing its nuclear forces or preparing for a nuclear weapons test. It is almost certain that if any nation saw indications that Russia was changing its nuclear weapons posture or preparing for a weapons test, the world would hear about it. There is no need to dig a backyard bunker. The bounty on the head of our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah, Igor Gherkin-Strelkov, has grown to at least $130,000. Gherkin is apparently in Ukraine as a volunteer fighter, and his sentencing hearing at The Hague is on November 17th for the downing of Malaysian Air Flight 17 in 2014. The bounty will be awarded if he is captured alive. Speaking of captured alive, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Forced mobilization continues in St. Petersburg and Moscow, with commissariats rounding people up at hostels, subways, and off the street. More families are receiving death notices and desperate phone calls from Mobics who were promised up to two months of training, but were deployed days after reporting for military service onto the front lines. In Chelyabinsk, the wife of a dead Mobik is seeking answers on how her husband could have been deployed and killed in action just a week after reporting for training. In Svatov, Mobiks report that the only training they got was firing three rounds at the rifle range before being deployed into one of the hottest areas of fighting. Pictures and video show that the DNR and LNR are using D-1 artillery pieces, first deployed in 1943, and S-60 57mm anti-aircraft guns, or AA, first deployed in 1950. The LNR uses the S-60AA for direct fire at ground targets, with the Cold War-era system providing an effective range of 6 kilometers. The LNR militia released pictures of recently mobilized conscripts into the 2nd Army Corps at a small swearing-in ceremony at the Verknokamyanka oil refinery. The official PR photograph is stunning when you consider this is the best of the best. The images show men in their mid-40s to 60s in an assortment of uniforms and equipment. The image harkens back to 1945 Germany and the Volksturm. With reports of significant fighting at the edges of the refinery, including in Spirne, these men will likely be immediately thrown into intense combat. The governor of the Kursk Oblast in Russia visited a military training camp and sounded alarm bells on the deplorable conditions. Roman Stadovoit reported the dining room was ruined while the showers were broken and rusted. There weren't enough beds for the Mobiks, and the available ones were completely worn out. Conscripts don't have uniforms, and Stadovoit said the parade ground, quote, looks like it was bombed, end quote. In Russian-occupied Melitopol, Russian passports come with a high price. 
Exiled Mayor Ivan Fedorov reported that up to 3,000 residents had been forcibly mobilized into so-called volunteer battalions of the DNR. Due to increasing attacks and vandalism, Russia has been forced to increase security at military enlistment offices nationwide. In Russian-occupied Crimea, recent Mobics complained that the plate receiver they were issued for body armor was full of holes and stained. Some of the issued equipment is held together with duct tape. While I always appreciate a solid effort to reduce, reuse, and recycle, I feel like that's not supposed to apply to military equipment and hardware. At least their body armor has usable plates, though. Ukrainian soldiers recorded a video showing the body armor issued to recently captured Russian troops. The thin metal was bendable with their bare hands and would offer no ballistic or shrapnel protection. Fun story here, an American company was selling Russian IRP 24-hour military rations, sealed, with a production date of May 2022. The equivalent of a 24-hour MRE pack was for sale for $49.95 each and sold out pretty quickly. The stacks of newly produced Russian military rations for sale in the U.S. market indicate a stunning level of corruption within the Russian military, with troops being provided outdated dry rations or reduced to looting due to a lack of supplies. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian troops executed celebrated Ukrainian musician and conductor Yuri Kerpotenko in his Kherson home after he refused to participate in a concert. Conductor Semyon Butchkov said, quote, The Russians' actions were pure genocide. The tragic irony of this is that Russians talk about the superiority of Russian culture, its humanism, and here they murdered someone who is actually bringing beauty to people's lives. It is sickening. End quote. In economic news, the ruble improved slightly with an exchange rate of 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices were steady over the weekend, with WTI crude expected to open at $86 a barrel and Brent at $93. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was set to trade at $2.65 a gallon, or $0.70 a liter. European Union natural gas futures continue to plummet in price. Natural gas EU Dutch TTF was trading at 132 euros per megawatt hour. It was the lowest price for natural gas in the EU since late June. Chicago SRW wheat futures were unchanged over the weekend, with trading expected to open at $8.65 per bushel in Monday morning trading. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.